And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. bumpy start this morning <laughs> i got all involved watching the queen's funeral <laughs> so uh all right good morning welcome to the real investment show i'm your host Lance roberts uh brent clanton driving our our, our bumpy bus this morning <laughs> as we get going <laughs> um a couple of things uh, kind of going on uh this morning of course um all eyes are right now basically on every channel uh that you go to is the state funeral of Queen Elizabeth. So that's uh, going to be the kind of dominating news headline this morning. Uh, futures are pointing fairly uh, a good bit lower this morning as well. Uh, S&P is down about 30 points right now. Nasdaq's down about 1%. So um, going to be a bit of a rough open this morning. Dow's down about 200 points. Again, this is kind of just uh, follow through from uh, last week, really, which was under a good bit of pressure. So, you know, as we kind of you know, kind of continue to work through uh, this last two weeks of September. Um, it's going to be a little bit bumpy here, particularly this week. And, and again, some of the selling pressure this morning is really an anticipation of what the Fed or Fed may not do this week, because this week is the FOMC meeting. Uh, that happens on Wednesday. So, um, you know, 75 basis points is pretty much baked in the cake at, uh, right now, but there is concern the Fed could go as much as 1%. This morning, Goldman Sachs out uh, basically with a rate schedule for the rest of this year. Um, 75 basis points in September, and then two more rate hikes of 50 basis points to wrap up the year. So that's another 1%. So that would put the Fed funds rate between 4 and 4.25%. Four and that is, of course, uh, where right now that is the expected terminal rate. In other words, that's the point to where the Fed will stop, well, hopefully, <laughs> stop hiking rates and, uh, you know, uh, see where things go from there. So that's kind of the, the, the game plan from Goldman Sachs right now. Now, interestingly enough, as we talk about this, you know, there's one thing to remember about Fed fund rate hikes, and I'm, I'm actually writing an article about this and have it out in the next day or so. But <clears throat> that is the point where we start to see the impact of these Fed rate hikes. Because remember, when the Fed hikes rates, it takes 9 to 12 months for that rate hike to show up. So let's go back to the calendar for a second and think about what's been going on this year. The Fed hiked 25 basis points in March. So if it's 9 to 12 months from March, that's the end of this year before even the March rate hike shows up. Since then, we've hiked 50 basis points, 75 basis points, 75 basis points, and now we're talking about another 75 basis points this week. So you went from 25 basis points that hasn't even hit the market yet, or the economy, I should say, and now you've added a good bit more to that you know, uh, three percentage points, 
you know, just in the course of the of the next six months. So here we are. We've got, you know, a, a you know, over, you know, right now it's at 2.25%. You'll be at 3% following this week. And, you know, now we're talking about those in, that that increase has not even shown up in the economy yet. And so this is the big risk for the Fed, right? We talk about these Fed policy mistakes and what's going to happen there. You know, the big risk for the Fed, of course, is that, you know, they're they're hiking interest rates and looking at lagging economic data. If, if you go to our website, um, we have our weekly market recap up with uh, Adam Taggart. And this is something I was talking about with him. I said, you know, this is like the old days where you, you know, you had the map. And when I was growing up, you know, we all, we take, we take, nobody flew back when I was growing up. You got in a car and you drove places, you know, you saw the world. There was actual scenery. You didn't have a phone to look at the whole time you were, you were going. So you actually had to look out the windows and, you know, play those games. Remember the, remember the games you'd play, Brent, you know, like, you know, count, you know, license plates from other states and punch buggies, punch buggies. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that's how you entertain yourself <laughs> in the back seat of a car. She's looking at me. Exactly. Stop touching me. I'm not. <laughs> She's breathing on me. Yeah, I also remember we didn't wear seatbelts. And you remember that deck in the back? Oh, of the, yeah. The, that, that, was, that was for sleeping, that and, deck in the back of the car where the speakers went. And tanning. Yeah, and tanning. <laughs> that was where you slept. If you, had, if you were lucky enough to have a station wagon, the whole back of the station oh, yeah. wagon was for, you know, basically picnicking while you were driving. So. Right. You know, how we survived, you know, growing up it's amazing. without all of these rules, you know, right. seat belts and, you know, all these other rules and regulations we have now. Stuff you can and cannot do with kids. Drinking out of the water hose. Exactly. All that. Amazing we survived. Mm. It's amazing. But here we are, nonetheless. Mentally, mentally deranged, apparently. But yes, here we are. <laughs> so... But this is this is the point, you know, back then, you know, as you know, I always remember growing up is is that we take these car trips and my mom was the navigator. Of course, you know, you had to have that folding map that you got at the gas station. And the real challenge of the map was not reading the map. That was not the challenge. The challenge was folding it back up to get it back into its original folded state so it would actually fit into the, the glove compartment. Most of the time, it just got wadded up in some mangled format and shoved in <laughs> shoved in the door somewhere. So, <laughs> but yeah, that's. But my mom would be the navigator, and this is kind of like the Fed. So the Fed's looking at the map, and they're going, "Oh, I got inflation. I got to hike interest rates." So they're hiking interest rates aggressively here to combat inflation. The problem is that as they're looking at the map and trying to predict where the exit is. You know, the real world of what's happening is already moving past them. And this is, you know, they're looking at a lot of lagging economic data. And it was always the, you know, as I was growing up, we always had the scenic trips that my mom would put together on vacations, which was basically caused by the fact that as she was reading the map, the exit we were supposed to take passed us by. <laughs> and so she'd tell my father, you know, hey, the exit, uh, we just passed the exit, right? And this, uh, this usually evolved into a long string of, of explicatives as we tried to turn the car around to go back to the exit. Um, but that's what's going on with the Fed right now. So as they're looking at trailing economic data like economic growth or retail sales or you know employment, these things are very subject to revision. 
In other words, we may we may look at employment right now and go, oh, we just had 300,000 people employed last month. Sounds great. Awesome. Well, we'll find out in about 9 to 12 months as they start doing backwards revisions to the data. It's like, oh, we didn't really have 300,000 people. We actually lost 100,000. And right now there's a big gap. So that Bureau of Labor Statistics employment number is a good example of this. That BLS report that comes out once a month, that employment number, is a is derived from the household survey. This is the survey that the employees of the government, they call 60,000 households. They call the same households every month for you know a period of time. And then they switch up households. But they call up the same household to see what the changes are from one month to the next. And so that serve that household survey is then taken and the BLS applies all their mathematical adjustments to it. And that comes out with the employment report. Well, the problem is, is that right now there's a huge gap between the positivity of the BLS report, the official one, and the actual household survey, which isn't nearly as optimistic. Be right back after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. If your portfolio looks more like a horror show, you won't want to miss our next Candid Coffee on dealing with bloody markets. No tricks, just treats. From Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff with some not-so-spooky ideas to budgeting and how to maximize your cash. Don't be spooked by markets or Danny's bathroom. On our next Candid Coffee, Saturday, October 1st. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. A penny found is worth more than a penny earned. That's because the penny that's earned is taxed. True statement. That was from uh, Shower Thoughts on Twitter. So, <laughs> I just want to know. It's a sequel to Deep Thoughts. Yeah, exactly. I just want to know who the guy in the shower was going, hmm. <laughs> and Penny really doesn't buy you a whole lot, even though taxed or untaxed either way. And think about it who really tweets from the shower? That's a point. Yeah. There's the whole electric thing. But other than that, so. Couple of things, um, you know, that's been going on, and and you know, this is, you know, one of the things to pay attention to. Markets are under a lot of pressure here, and as I talked to, as I was talking about in the last segment, you know, the, the big risk for the Fed is they're hiking rates, and you know, hoping that the economy will kind of just softly, you know, decline uh, into a soft landing situation, and they'll be able to then, you know kind of hold interest rates where they are and everything will be fine and inflation will come down. Unfortunately, history suggests that things just don't work out that way. <clears throat> but again, it's just one of the kind of one of the issues that we're dealing with in the markets. The other is that, and we've talked about this on the show before, is that stock buybacks have been a major contributor to the asset price inflation over the last decade. Since 2011, stock buybacks have made up about 40% of the total return of the market. 
So it's it's been a very large contributor to the rise in asset prices. In fact, um, really about over the last three to four years, they've almost made up and the entirety of net purchases of stocks in the market. So stock buybacks are not inconsequential as, uh, you know, just as an example. Apple has spent nearly half a trillion dollars buying back their stock. And a lot of that's been done by the issuance of debt. So buying back stock, of course, that is an artificial buyer of, of equities in the markets. And the only people it really benefits, by the way, it doesn't. And, and again, we'll, we can, you know, I'm not, I don't want to spend a lot of time about this because if you go to our website, realinvestmentadvice.com, and just Google buybacks, you'll get plenty of articles on this. Um, the problem is that buybacks are not a return of capital to investors. That is a myth. A return of capital to shareholders by a company is dividends, right? I own my stock, and then the company gives me money on top of my stock in the form of a dividend. That's a return of capital, right? I'm getting a, a, a monetary inflow to the shares I own. One of the premises that people have put out in the markets is that buybacks are a return of capital. Well, technically they are, right? because you're getting your capital back, but you no longer own your shares in a buyback situation. In other words, you have a choice. You are selling your stock back to the company. That's the buyback part. And the company gives you capital. But I see, as an investor, you can do that any day in the open market. I mean, you can go out this morning and you can sell your shares in the open market and you'll get your capital back, right? So the company issuing buybacks isn't doing anything for you as a shareholder that you can't do for yourself in terms of selling your shares in the open market. The reason that companies do buybacks is two, twofold. One, it is primarily a benefit to insiders who can exercise their stock options and generate capital for themselves by selling their redeeming their stock options, grants, etc., back to the company. The second thing it does is that it lowers the number of shares outstanding, which makes earnings per share or any other factor that is done by a per share basis look better. You know, so, you know, simple math, if you don't understand that equation is, is a, a company earns a dollar and they have two shares outstanding, Right. So their earnings are 50 cents per share. Next year, they earn a dollar, right? They earn no more money, but they buy back one share. So now it's a dollar's worth of earnings per share. So it, in, it increases the earnings per share without creating any type of additional benefit or value to the company. It is a very ineffective use of capital. It is the least best use of capital for companies. So if I have $100 million on my books, I can spend $100 million buying back my shares, which artificially inflates my earnings per share basis for one quarter or one year. But I could also use that $100 million to go acquire another company, build a new plant, buy new production equipment, you know, hire new employees, whatever. 
to actually increase my revenue and increase my business. But again, in the quest to keep asset prices high so that, well, executor, executive compensation, you know, is, you know, well entrenched because of rising option prices, stock option, you know, grants, those type of things that executives get <clears throat> to make sure asset prices remain high so those options have value has become the primary consideration of executives. So again, stock buybacks are not a benefit to you, the average person out there just owning shares of Apple. Apple share buybacks are beneficial to the executives, the insiders, and the company in general. Well, the problem is, and again, as we've talked, as I was saying, you know, buybacks have made up a very significant portion of the buying of stock shares in the open market as companies buy back these shares. And right now we're going into a blackout window because I know we just, it seems like we just finished earnings, but it's already coming up on earnings time again. Here we go for the, you know, for the next quarter it starts in October. So we'll start reporting third quarter's earnings for companies. And when we get to that point, between now over the next two weeks and when we kick off earnings season again, there's a blackout window for buybacks. Companies can't buy back their stock. For the next couple of weeks, there is going to be a blackout window on these stock buybacks, which is going to remove one of the artificial buyers from the markets. So this is potentially going to, to limit the ability for asset prices to increase. doesn't mean they can't. It doesn't mean that asset prices will decline from here sharply. doesn't mean anything other than you're just removing one of the buyers from the markets. That's it. So it's just something worth paying attention to here. Markets are certainly under pressure. As I said earlier, markets are going to open down about 1% this morning. We're going to, and, and this is going to be one of the things, <clears throat> you know, last week we had a lot of selling pressure in the markets because of a massive options expiration on Friday. Um, normally, we see a little bit better positive action out of the markets following options expiration. So a lot of people had to, you know, sell positions to to restrike contracts, et cetera, last week. So we saw a lot of volatility. This week, you know, you generally see a lot of those positions getting putting back on as as contracts get rewritten, et cetera. So, you know, we should see a little bit better performance theoretically. And markets are oversold here short term. So we should see a little bit better performance here over the next you know, week or so. But the, the you know, kind of pressure is that the last two weeks of September, the last 10 trading days, also tend to, to not be great. So it's, you know, this is one of the weaker months of the year right now. A lot of the international markets are closed for vacation. So, you know, you just, you just have kind of a lack of buying right now. And so, again, you know, it's easy for markets to kind of drift lower during this period. So... You know, it's it's you know, there's no guarantee that markets will rally. But again, markets are oversold enough here that a bit of a rally would not be of surprise at all. And and so we'll we'll see what happens. But again, markets are going to open down pretty sharply this morning. We'll see how they finish up today. There's pretty kind of the markets are sitting on fairly important support right now where we closed on Friday. So we're going to kind of break that important support level this morning. And if we don't close above that within the next day or two, um, we're probably going to test somewhere around the 37, 3800 level 
you know, probably 3,700 level on the S&P. So there is certainly some downside risk here in the near term. So again, uh, you know, being a little bit underweight stock at this point certainly isn't going to be uh, a bad idea. And and the risk of, of retesting the July lows is certainly not out of the question. So, you know, markets are certainly in a vulnerable position at the moment. The good news is, of course, that we are about to enter into the seasonally strong period of the year beginning in October. Again, that doesn't mean necessarily you're going to have a, a massive rally in the markets, but you, you do have some seasonal factors that may alleviate some of this selling pressure. We you know we've had a very tough nine months of this year. This market's been under selling pressure ever since January, and it's, and it's weighing on investors, right? This has been a very dull <laughs> bull, uh, bear market. It's just kind of been one of those deaths by a thousand cuts. It hasn't been a, a violent price decline, um, except in some of the meme stock areas and some of the, you know, companies that lack fundamentals those have gotten you know absolutely crushed uh, you know over the course of this year but you know this is outside of that this has been this this kind of slow declining you know bear market structure that just psychologically weighs on investors and this is where it, it gets tough right i mean we, we've talked about that you know this is is one of those markets where being invested and trying to trade this market has been frustrating but this is where we make a lot of mistakes. So part of this is just getting through this. We're going to get through this. We'll get to the other side of this and things will get a lot better. I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to coming back in the studio. It's like markets are up every day. That's a much better environment psychologically to be in. And I, and, and being optimistic is a lot better. So <laughs> that we'd like that too. But we've just kind of got to get through this and, and, and survive you know, this period in the markets. But, and, and it's important. Don't forget where we came from. We just had two years where markets were up 20%. So, again, this year, I know it feels bad, but don't forget where you came from either. And we're still above where we were price-wise at the February 2019-2020 peak. So, you know, keep that, keep, keep a, a relative focus. Be right back after the break. The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. If your portfolio looks more like a horror show, you won't want to miss our next Candid Coffee on dealing with bloody markets. No tricks, just treats. From Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff with some not-so-spooky ideas to budgeting and how to maximize your cash. Don't be spooked by markets or Danny's bathroom. On our next Candid Coffee, Saturday, October 1st. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso. Realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. It's uh, 6.33 as we kind of get this Monday edition of the show underway. It's been a little muppy this morning, but, uh, you know, we're getting there. <laughs> Of course, uh, Friday was, you know, the FedEx report that sent, you know, really kind of set the market off on a bad note as the company reported uh, not only a, a, a miss in earnings, but a rather negative outlook about the economy. And now, you know, FedEx is interesting because as a company, 
you know, they are pretty much etched into the fabric of our lives, right? It's, uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, for people that didn't grow up, you know, pre-Fred Smith days, and, and if you ever have a, every if you ever have the opportunity, do a little research on Fred Smith. It's a very interesting story about the launch of FedEx. People at the time he went and was trying to raise capital to start FedEx. People were like, "Who needs to send stuff overnight? That's stupid," you know. And you know, basically had no support. It took him quite some time to actually get the company launched. And now, you know, can you imagine? You know, back back then is like, "Who needs?" You put stuff in the envelope, you give it to the mailbox, it gets there in a couple of days, you know, whatever. It's fine. You don't need to get stuff there literally overnight. I mean, who has, you know, who needs to have stuff that quick? And, you know, this was a point in time where we were still faxing contracts back and forth each other and, you know, those type of things. So, you know, it's a very fascinating story to read about Fred Smith and the launch of Federal Express. Wasn't that a college essay or it's master's thesis co- or something? College thesis, yeah. And he got a C on it. And, yep. Yeah. Yeah. It was like stupid. It's a stupid <laughs> idea. Who needs that? Who, who needs stuff that quick? Now, yeah. can you imagine? It's like you put stuff in the mail, like you're mailing me something? Seriously? <laughs> you know, Amazon has, you know, dominated the space here now because, you know, it's like next day delivery. You know, I'm waiting for Amazon Prime to start becoming pre-prime, which is, you know... You bring it to just bring it to my house and put it in my hand, right? Just before I think about it. Eat, yes, if I think about it, yes. deliver it to my house. It's almost that bad. I mean, you're oh, sitting, I, I get same day service now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I order it's, some it's, stuff. It's there within an hour or two. Yeah, it's it's and it's going to keep getting. Yeah. Again, I just want to be able to think about it and then it shows up and bill somebody else for it. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, this is, you know, we have gotten so used to that convenience, right? Now, just having stuff as fast as humanly possible. We have no patience for anything anymore, right? It's like, I got to have it, and I'm too damn lazy to go get it, so just deliver it to me. And, you know, this is, and so it's interesting when FedEx comes out and says, you know, we see a sharp slowdown in deliveries, et cetera. You have to ask two questions. One, is this solely an economic issue and i you know and certainly it's it's economic right that you know they are seeing a slowdown in earnings because you know people are having to make cutbacks right this is kind of the first area you're going to see stuff show up uber and you know grubhub and and these type of you know convenient services that we've all gotten used to i mean grubhub is not cheap right i mean so you know, if you're ordering food and paying the Grubhub delivery fee, it, it and top of your you know other fees and taxes, et cetera, on food, it 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 pushes the price of food up pretty considerably. But it's a convenience service, so we pay for it. So over the next quarter, it'll be very important to watch these types of services to see what they're saying. Are they confirming the FedEx story, or is FedEx got a leadership problem? You know, Amazon is getting into its own delivery services. They've got a deal with Rivian to get a whole bunch of electric vehicles so they can start delivering more packages on their own. And and Amazon's building out their own kind of quote-unquote FedEx delivery service, right? So, you know, that's one of the the impacts. FedEx has, you know, got competition. FedEx has competition through UPS as well. 
So the, the question becomes, is this a FedEx-centric problem or is this an economic problem? I suspect it's a bit of both. And again, this is what I'm saying is that, you know, the FedEx warning um, Friday was certainly worth paying attention to. And it does potentially say a lot about where the economy is headed. But now we need to start looking for confirmation from not only companies like UPS, but also from Amazon talking about a retail spending slowdown, Walmart, Target. You know, how much foot traffic do they have in their stores? Look at same store comp sales. That'll be an important indicator. And then look at companies like Grubhub, DoorDash, um, Uber, Lyft, because those are, are services that we may see people making different decisions on, not traveling as much, not going as many places. Uh, you know, Uber Eats, of course, you know, people not ordering as much, and literally go get it themselves type thing, eating in more. These are all going to be important signs to watch about where the strength and direction of the economy is going to. Now, again, it's not just the domestic economy either. It's also the global economy. As we said before on the show, in fact, said just had a chart out about this recently, about 40% of sales of U.S. companies come from international countries. So, you know, with the problem in the UK as an example, and with what's happening in you know areas uh, in, in in the eurozone in general because of what's happening with electric prices, etc., you know this is going to potentially create a bigger recessionary drag in Europe. We're seeing a lot of we're seeing a lot of uh, retail stores and restaurants close because they simply can't afford. The electric bills, there was a story this morning, a German bakery was slapped with a 330,000 euro gas bill after a new energy company suddenly terminated their contract, which guaranteed pricing until the end of 2023. Now, there was a company here in Texas called Gritty, and they were announcing, this was a few years back, and they were running ads on all the radio stations, TV stations, et cetera. It's like, hey, come join Greedy. You know, what, what we have is a billing system that you, you pay what we pay, basically, right? And, and you didn't have to, you didn't pay these fixed costs and blah, blah, blah. You just, and this is when electricity prices were really low. And, and so people were jumping onto Greedy. We tried it out as ourselves. And fortunately, we switched. Um, back to a different plan before the freeze hit in February of 2021 uh, when we had the the freeze, the deep freeze here in Texas, because all of a sudden that electricity pricing shot through the roof. So if you were on the gritty plan, all of a sudden you got these massive electric bills and, and nobody was prepared for that. And I don't believe that company's around anymore. Yeah, they didn't make it. And, but this is what happened in Germany. Same type of deal. Oh, we're going to guarantee you a flat rate pricing. And then all of a sudden, they can't guarantee that flat rate pricing anymore. So they terminate the contract and you get a bill for 330,000 euros. Can you imagine? He's got 14. So the owner, Eklund Vata, who says he has 14 days to pay the bill. He says, a year ago, we paid $5,856 um, uh, 56 euros per month 
and gas costs for our large furnaces and heating. So, so again, you know, there, there's a big, ba- this isn't, a, this isn't a mom and pop bakery. This is a, this is a Baird's break bakery type thing, right? But again, we're seeing this a lot uh, in uh, the UK as an example. There's a lot of age old uh, pubs and restaurants going out of business because they can't afford to pay their electric bills. Now, the point, the point about this is, is this, is, is two things. One, these businesses are closing, which derives revenue for the economy. They provide jobs, which create revenue for the economy. And these rising costs are weighing on consumers, so they're having to make a decision between buying other stuff and paying their electric bills and their heating bills, gas bills, which means they're buying less stuff in the economy. So it would, and so the point about that is, is that if 40% of corporate revenues come from international markets, then how on earth can we expect S&P 500 companies to generate higher rates of earnings growth into 2023? And estimates are still at $230, $240 a share by Wall Street for the end of 2023. So, you know, that's a problem that's coming. And, you know, we just haven't realized that function yet. That, but that is an issue. And we've written about this several times. We've talked about earnings, you know, et cetera. But, again, if you pay attention to what's happening in these kind of ancillary areas of the market, FedEx was a warning. Does that mean it is a guaranteed? But, no, it, it, just one company isn't the issue. But it's certainly a red flag worth paying attention to. And yes, we can certainly attribute some of this this to FedEx's leadership. That's certainly an issue. But once we start seeing it show up at UPS and Grubhub and Uber Eats and, you know, other Amazon, Walmart, Target, when you start seeing the warning signs from these companies about slowing consumer demand, that is going to be really a much better indicator about where we are economically as we head into 2023. So this next quarter's earnings season is going to be very important not to pay attention to the earnings report, but what the CEOs say about their outlook. Be right back after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. If your portfolio looks more like a horror show, you won't want to miss our next Candid Coffee on dealing with bloody markets. No tricks, just treats. From Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff with some not-so-spooky ideas to budgeting and how to maximize your cash. Don't be spooked by markets or Danny's bathroom. On our next Candid Coffee, Saturday, October 1st. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso. realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show.
Kevin Wyman up the show this morning. Uh, Dow futures down about 253, Nasdaq down 116, uh, S&P is down about 1% this morning. So it's going to be a, a little tough open here. The question will be whether or not the markets can kind of get off the mat as once we open. Again, seeing a little bit of selling pressure through this morning, not surprising. A lot of uh, investors got home, you know, on Friday. Markets down fairly sharply. A little bit of panic over the weekend. Um, you know, so not surprising, still a bit of selling pressure this morning. The question will be whether or not the markets can recover um, and we get some buying throughout the day and, and try to hold the support that we've been in uh, or sitting on on Friday where we close. So this is going to be a real important day uh, in terms of that support. Now, the markets need to regain that support level, you know, by the end of this week. Otherwise, we'll have a confirmed break and probably look to reset, you know, retest levels around 3,700. So, again, there's there's certainly downside risk here. But, again, it's always important not to panic. Let's let the, the markets kind of open this morning, see what happens. We'll update you again tomorrow, as, as always. So, you know, as I was saying, this this has been kind of the market of a, you know, kind of a death by a thousand cuts this year as this market just can't really seem, you know, it gets a little bit of a rally going then gives it all back up. It gets a little rally going, gives it all back up. And it's just this kind of this grind, you know, on investors. It's just been, you know, a fairly tough year to navigate. Um, kind of anything you do doesn't really work out that well. Hedges aren't working that great. So, you know, again, where, you know, areas that are supposed to be working, you have high inflation, gold's not working, right, because of real yields. Bonds aren't really working as a hedge this year because of concerns over the Fed. You know, all this is going to shake itself out, right? You know, one of the mistakes that investors make is this is going to last forever, and it's not. We're just in a tough spot right now. These are going to fix itself, and once we get through these problems, things will get better. Now, does that mean markets are going to go rip-roaring off into the next great bull market of the century? No, that's not what that means either. But it does mean we're going to get into a more bullish environment after this period. And that's the way markets work. We kind of go through these cycles, good and bad, good and bad. And the, and the difference previously is that every time we've had a hiccup in the market, the Fed's come running in with QE or some type of form of bailout, and they're, they're not currently showing up right now. To, to do that. In fact, they're doing just the opposite. This week, as I said, the FOMC meeting is this week, and Jerome Powell will most likely be mostly just reiterating his statement from the Jackson Hole Summit, saying that, hey, a bit of economic pain is needed here in order to bring inflation down, because that's more important. The problem is, is the Fed may be asking for a little bit more economic pain than they realize. We'll see what happens. But, you know, the Fed is not likely to pull the foot off the brake anytime soon because of the fact that inflation is still high. Even though inflation did come down in the last report, we're still over 8% inflation, and that's too high for the Fed. The Fed wants it at 2 So this is going to be a bit more work to do. And, and again, you know, the, everybody's kind of expecting the terminal rate for the Fed to be you know, four, four and a quarter percent. We'll see what that, that's going to look like. Uh, this will be a 75 basis point rate hike on Wednesday. And then they're expecting to drop to do 250 basis point rate hikes through the end of this year. So another 1% after this. Two-year Treasury rates, which tend to lead the Fed, is currently at 4%. So that's where the terminal rate for the Fed is right now as well. 
the question, of course, then is, is, is can how, you know, how long can the economy withstand higher rates? We're already starting to see, you know, the impact on the 30 year mortgage rate impacting the housing market, starting to see slowdown there. And we are starting to see some economic degradation as well. We're seeing a lot of economic indicators suggesting weaker economic growth, weaker outlooks. And so the, the issue is going to be ultimately is, is, you know, how long is it before we get through all of this? And it's going, to, it's going to take time. And the real question, as we've talked about before, is the issue of the Fed breaking something. Right. The Fed hikes rates to the point that something breaks economically. Now, right now, that doesn't really seem to be the case because everything's doing OK. You know, volatility remains very, very low in this market. We talked about this in this weekend's newsletter. Volatility remains very, very suppressed given this, you know, overall bearish negativity in the markets. Investors are very bearish on the market, but they don't want to sell anything because they're afraid that the Fed's going to pivot and stocks are going to take off and they're going to miss out. So on the run up, we had the fear of missing out because markets were going up. And I didn't want to miss out. Now I don't want to miss out because the Fed might change their stance and all of a sudden start bailing out the markets. and I don't want to miss the bottom. So despite the fact that we have investors very bearish on the markets, they're not selling at this point. So that's, uh, this is a kind of an interesting conundrum in the markets. And this is not surprising because we've spent so many years now with the Fed supporting markets and bailing out markets and teaching investors to buy dips and, you know, just every time the Fed rings the bell. And that's where we are right now. I mean, if you listen every week, it's like, it's, oh, it's oh, the Fed, right? The Fed's going to pivot. What's the Fed going to say at the next meeting? Are they going to give a hint at a pivot? Are they going to talk about potentially slowing down? And that's going to be bullish for stocks. And, you know, we don't even talk about fundamentals anymore. We don't talk about price to earnings on companies and price to sales and debt ratios and those type. We don't we don't even look at that stuff. All we care about right now is the Fed. What's the Fed going to do? And again, it's not surprising because that's all we've done for the last decade is pay attention to the Fed. And the Fed is now the main driver of the markets. It's kind of an unfortunate situation so much for price discovery and free and fair markets and all that type of stuff, but it is what it is. And so we have to play that game. And there's certainly risks to the market short term, and we certainly want to be aware of that. But uh, again, you know, from a short term technical perspective, markets are oversold. Use, again, as we talked about before, you know, use rallies to, to reduce risk, raise cash, rebalance, rebalance portfolios, etc. You know, just kind of stay on that track for right now. And again, we'll get through this. It's just a it's a difficult time. And it's certainly one of those periods where, you know, as we, you know, kind of get to these sell-offs, right? It just gets more and more pressures like, ah, I just gotta get out. And the and, and the problem with that is the getting back in part. You know, getting out is fine. It's just the getting back in that becomes problematic. And so it's just, uh, again, you know, part of this is just navigating this and, and also keeping perspective. Yes, markets are down this year. As we talked about before, you know, the, the problem is that as investors, we tend to anchor on specific points. My portfolio was $100,000 at the beginning of the year, and now it's, you know, $90,000. And I'm down 10% this year. 
I'm losing, I'm losing all my money. Well, go back two years ago, three years ago, your portfolio was $60,000. And now you're at 90. So, you know, it's important to not anchor to high watermarks. You know, always look at your portfolio in terms of a two-year or three-year return basis, not year to date. That's, you know, that's a great marketing ploy for Wall Street because money in motion creates fees for Wall Street. So, you know, when your markets, you know, when you look at your portfolio from January the 1st to December 31st, your portfolio is now like, oh, I got to go get a different advisor. I got to buy a different mutual fund, whatever it is. Well, you go jump from what was hot last year to what's hot this year, and that creates fees for Wall Street. Generally, you're moving from what worked last year to something that's not working this year. We always tend to jump to the things that were working, and things generally work for a year or two, and then they don't work, right? It's just the way the markets work. And so by chasing performance, we always tend to jump from what's hot to what's not. And that creates fees for Wall Street, hurts your long-term performance. So if you'll go back and say, how, did my, how was my performance, you know, from two years ago till now? Three years ago till now. And now you start looking at, you know, kind of these, a better picture that says, okay, my portfolio is up 6% a year. That's what my goal was. You're fine. If your portfolio was $80,000 last year and it's $90,000 this year, you're still, you know, you're still making money, right? You're still up. Now, again, you're down from your peak number. I got that. But you're still moving in the right direction. And that, so it's important to reframe your focus on your portfolio performance. And that'll help you stay with your investment discipline. No investment discipline works every year, year in, year out. It just doesn't work that way. But it works over time. A good investment discipline will work over time. And that's what's important. So when you're measuring performance, measure it over a period of time, not from a year-to-date basis. You know, because it's ridiculous, you know, also to think about it this way. Why do we pick January the 1st, right? You started your portfolio last year on September the 1st, and then you reset your performance in January the 1st, and you measure it from January to December. Why not measure it from September to September? right it's arbitrary so reframe your focus so that you get a better picture about your performance over time and it'll help you keep things in perspective so you can allow your investment discipline to work for you okay that's my rant for the day tomorrow Technically speaking, Tuesday, we'll get back into the markets. We'll see what happens today. Again, markets are going to open down this morning. It's going to be important that markets try to rally here a bit today. We'll see if they're able to do that or not. Um, again, the risk is to the downside right now. Um, but again, markets are oversold short term. So again, just be a little patient here. Give the markets a, a little bit of room to work. So trying not to make emotional decisions. Uh, get by the website. Our latest newsletter is out on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Just click the newsletter link. We cover oil prices, yields, volatility. Um, got some interesting kind of aspects in there as well. Real, uh, realinvestmentadvice.com. If you're not subscribed, subscribe at the website. We'll email the newsletter to you every weekend. Um, and also check out the entire website. Send us your questions, comments. Let us know what we can do for you. realinvestmentadvice.com. See you back here tomorrow.